0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: You do know that Kimberly Guilfoyle is Gavin Newsom's ex-wife, right? Oh, it's fantastic. Okay,
0: She's the one who's like, what what did she scream at the White House
1: convention? I don't know. Like literally with her arms like this. That's because she was on a lot of cocaine, I believe. I mean, are you embarrassed all the time?
0: Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined as always by two-term U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant Alicia Preston. Folks, I want to talk about the little brouhaha that occurred over the weekend around the White House's characterization of Democratic activists as being out of step. The way all of this went down is apparently there was a major story in the Washington Post chronicling the administration's supposed 14-day struggle to craft a message and policy plan after the Supreme Court decision on abortion in the Dobbs case. The White House pushed back. Here is the statement that Kate Bedingfield, the communications director for the White House, made in the aftermath of that story. She said... Joe Biden's goal in responding to Dobbs is not to satisfy some activists who have been consistently out of step with the mainstream of the Democratic Party. It's to deliver help to women who are in danger and assemble a broad-based coalition to defend a woman's right to choose now, just as he assembled such a coalition to win during the 2020 campaign. The response, online especially, to that statement was well, I can't really repeat it here because this is a family show. Suffice it to say, there has been some pushback to the idea that it's Democratic activists and pro-choice activists, in particular, who are out of step with the mainstream with the pressure they're putting on the White House to be more active. All right, Alicia, what did you make of all this? I mean, is, is either side right in this? Was this some kind of a, like a communications gaffe or a misstep on the part of the White House?
1: No, the gaps that the White House makes—they make statements and then walk them back when the left wing of the Democratic Party pressures them to do so. Same as with Joe B- Joe Biden made statements about Russia and the invasion of Ukraine. What his communications person said is true. They are out of step with the majority of Americans, Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, you've got all these left wing activists that are screaming for, you know, abortion right through the ninth month of pregnancy. And 82 percent of the country doesn't believe, agree with that. And so the White House is trying to pull back a little to represent, as they should, the bulk of America. And I think that makes sense because, you know, the left, the extreme left, just like the extreme right, they don't No one on any extreme thinks, you know, credibly anymore. I'm watching a news show this morning and the liberal talking head analyst guy is on there. And they're talking about all this abortion stuff. And he actually said the sentence, and I know this because I tweeted at him how ridiculous it is. You are not, and I quote, you are not a person in this country until you pay taxes. And I'm like, my 17 year old doesn't have a job, so she's not a person. <laughs> like it doesn't make sense. It was, but it was such an extreme view they're trying to take that it loses rationale. The majority of the country, Democrats and Republicans, don't agree with that. So I think the White House was right. They should take their licks from the far left and uh, move on because they're not voting for Republicans. So it's not like that matters.
0: I, I have to agree with you that the way I picture this happening, because I've been in meetings like this, albeit at the congressional level, I've never worked in the White House, but the way this usually goes down in a communication staff is you're fully aware, you have malice aforethought here, right? You're fully aware of your word choices when you do this. And I think there was some frustration on the part of the White House. Now, whether they were lashing out in frustration and whether that was the smart strategic thing to do, that's a separate question but this is not some kind of a stumble or a misstep in the sense that it was inadvertent. Kate Bedingfield is an extremely intelligent person. When when you make that word choice, and this is a statement coming from the White House Communications Director, you know full well that you are throwing a brushback pitch at a certain faction within your party. And I think that there is some frustration and you're beginning to see it voiced. Look, I write for a publication called The Editorial Board. It's all, you know, our, our pieces also show up on Alternet, Raw Story, all, all kinds of other online publications. One of my fellow authors there, who's also been a guest on Beyond Politics, Noah Berlatsky, just wrote a long piece saying, you know, anti-war activists are kind of doing a lot of this same thing. They've been coming down like a ton of bricks on this White House. And the the statistics show, the facts show that this has been the least bellicose, the least warmongering, the least militarily active White House in in living memory, that drone strikes are down, uh, fatalities among our service members are are way, way down, that this this is a White House that's actually been implementing their agenda. And I think what Kate Bedingfield was saying here is, well, hold on a second here, folks. We're doing the things that you're calling on us to do. We're not doing things that are totally unrealistic, pie in the sky. We're not announcing a court packing scheme because that's never going to happen. It's not politically productive. It's not going to advance the ball. And you know, forgive us if we don't take messaging advice from the far left of our party. The, the geniuses who came up with defund the police We think we'll take our own counsel on the best way to message about all of this. So this was clearly intentional. Whether poking at them and picking a fight with that wing of the party is wise, uh, that's a, that's a, a bit of a separate question. But I will tell you that there is a thirst among more centrist Democrats for the White House to do this and to say, hey, guys, cool your jets just a little bit. We are doing the best we can up against an insane group on the Supreme Court and an insane, an insane group of Trumpists who are trying to overthrow American democracy. Can you cut us some frickin' slack here? Paul Hodes, where do you come down on this? First of all, substantively, has the White House actually been as active as they say they are in pushing back against the Dobbs decision and trying to help women whose rights are now under threat? And what do you make of their messaging on all of this?
2: Uh, this is about a, something much deeper going on in the Democratic Party. It's not just about abortion. It's not just this instance. It's a, it's the it's the coming divide or the growing divide between the loud voices on the far left and those who are seeing very clearly that the bulk of American people, at least in terms of messaging and priorities, want think of themselves as a common sense. A uh, middle of 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 the country appreciate uh, change, but don't want to swallow it all in one gulp, and want to see that those who have the power are paying attention to um, to a wider spectrum of the politic politosphere uh, than simply their far left. Um, it also represents perhaps a first blow by. Uh, Joe Biden, who is just tired of the whining about his performance, tired of getting savaged by his own party. I mean, look, my experience is Democrats are really good at eating not just their young, but also their elders. Um, A little bit of unhappiness about something translates into cosmic disaster. And Biden and his team are unhappy about it because they inherited a you know what kind of show and are trying to work this country out of it in a responsible way. And so it's it's about progressive versus centrist. That's overly simplistic. But it's also Biden, in a way, coming back to where Biden has always been. He has always been the moderating voice, the re- the reasonable voice, the let's find a way through this voice and the left just wants it all right now, we elected a president, we thought we'd get everything. Well you're not going to get everything. And frankly um, as Democrats were in danger of losing everything, the louder the far left is perceived as being in control. So this is a kind of... Uh, It was interesting. It's in a way kind of gentle. It's a first blow uh, for the Biden team to say, um, get on get on board um, for your own good. Well, I'm not
0: trying to be. A Brian Windhorst meme here. And if you don't know what that is, just Google it real quick. Brian Windhorst meme. Alicia doesn't know what that is. You're not an NBA fan the way I am, but know your memes, people. Or anyway, memes. or anyway. Yeah, right, right. What's a meme? But, but, but <laughs> there was a very interesting series of stories that I think relates to this top story that came right on the heels of this top story. All of a sudden, right after this little kerfuffle, between the White House and progressive activists, you saw a raft of stories erupt in the media with insiders usually off the record, usually off the record, saying once again, Joe Biden's too old. He's lost a step. He's not active enough. He's, he's maybe not on his game anymore. Now, why would we see that? What's with the timing of those kinds of stories? Now, Alicia, I'm gonna turn to you first because you're a communications person. You are constantly in that role, in that job, pitching stories to the media. You're having off the record chats with members of the media. You're suggesting what the chatter is. Do you think, as I do, that this kind of a story maybe found its genesis in that kind of reactionary grumbling from certain figures in the democratic party is that why we're now seeing this new bumper crop of is joe biden too old media stories
1: no i think joe Biden's just too old and more and more people are starting to realize it i mean and look i'm not a quote-unquote joe biden hater uh i never have been um But he is just too old. And we're seeing him more on TV because of various things happening. Did someone pitch the story? I have no idea. Look, the other people that could have pitched the story were smacking them in the middle of January 6th hearings. You know, Trump supporters of high placement could be pitching the story to set up the potential 2024 head to head if that were to happen. Um, There's lots of people that would want that story out there. As an American, I have to say, I think 79 is too old right now and 82 will be too old then. And I know we're supposed to not say it, but I got to be honest, most people just feel it, whether you like his politics or don't like his politics, it, at some point you just get too old.
0: Paul, I mean, you, you are welcome to opine on the, the notion that this is a very selectively placed set of stories. But what do you also make of Alicia's proposition that, yeah, you know what? The merits of the case are simply that, that the man is now too old to seek a second term.
2: Well, look, Well, look. this response is coming from somebody who's now achieved senior status. I used to be a young person, but... I've now turned 71. And everything hurts. Okay, let's just face it. I got a rotator cuff on the right. I need a new knee. On the left, it hurts. I think I can't sleep on my left shoulder anymore. I got sciatica. Let me tell you, it's an organ recital. Now, Joe Biden has take, probably taken better care of himself than I have. So physically, he's riding his bike to show he's he's all there. And he's a little bit slower. And his verbal acuity, which was never acute, is a little bit lower. And but he's still sharp. I'm still sharp. He's still sharp. Can I see myself running for president? When I look at the gray hair that every president seems to get, they come in with a full head of hair, and they leave looking like Methuselah. Just think Joe Biden doesn't have that far to go. So it's it is, it's a tough job, and it takes an awful lot of stamina and an awful lot of both mental, physical, emotional strength to deal with it. So is he a little bit on the far end of the scale? Absolutely. Does he really want a second term, or is he just saying that? So we'll find out. But it's not too far-fetched to say, you know, it is 80 uh, kind of getting out there it's a it's 80s pretty pretty senior eighty is, is. you know i'm i i mean i i'm working hard to reach it and when i do i'll run for president
0: i want to relate a little bit of a story from one of the people who was willing to speak on the record who actually happens to be 80 himself david gergen who advised four presidents in various roles including Bill Clinton. He's a Republican. He worked for Ronald Reagan. He worked for George H.W. Bush. Um, He worked for Nixon and he worked for Bill Clinton. He was also a mentor of mine in graduate school. And what he said on the record this week was that "I, I do feel it's inappropriate to seek that office after you're 80 or in your 80s. I have just turned 80 and I found over the last two or three years, I think it would have been unwise me to try to run any organization. You're not quite as sharp as you once were. Now, what he's specifically referring to is a story that he told me 20 years ago when I was his student, which is when he worked for Ronald Reagan, they used to have a very specific protocol in Reagan's second term. When Ronald Reagan went to the nuclear summit with Mikhail Gorbachev in Reykjavik, Iceland, they had to take an entire replica of his bedroom with him. And they had to set it up like a movie set because if they didn't, he would become confused and disoriented about where he was and what was happening. And they had to take fairly extreme steps like that in order to help him to perform even the bare minimum of his job. Gergen also told me that he used to be quite disoriented before speeches. But when the teleprompter came on, when the light for the camera came on and he could see his image in the TV screen facing him, it would click in, he would have a recognition. He would even say, ah, there he is. Because he was so used as an actor to seeing himself in that context. So there's no suggestion in all of these stories. In fact, in the most deeply reported stories that we saw over the weekend, there was on and off the record Agreement that Joe Biden is not at that point. He has a fair degree of mental acuity going on and his energy level seems good. So, what would worry me though is you have to skate to where the puck is going. You do not want to reach that point. So, look, in most circumstances, in almost all circumstances, I would agree with Alicia and I would say he should not seek a second term. He should do what he sort of suggested he was setting out to do in his campaign back in 2019, which is to be a caretaker, a transitional president, to get us away from the era of Trump and onto something else. There's one big caveat to that, which is if we come to the conclusion as a party that he is still the only person who can beat Donald Trump, and I believe that he was the only person who could beat Donald Trump in 2020, then it would be worth it. In fact, if he were to actually die, and we were talking about a weekend at Bernie scenario where the mechanically animated corpse of Joe Biden was running against Donald Trump, and that was our only chance to defeat Donald Trump, I would favor that scenario because that's the kind of existential crisis we are up against with the potential candidacy of Donald Trump once again in 2024. But absent that scenario, I am on team retirement. Alicia?
1: I just want to say that one of the reasons I don't think he should run for a second term in addition to the fact that he's too old is I want to see a matchup between Gavin Newsom and Donald Trump because I think it would be really funny for the ex-husband of his daughter-in-law to be running against him.
0: So we're, we're, we're kind of doing <laughs> last week, our idea live on the, well, our, I mean, it was kind of mine and it was a bad idea so that's why I'm going to own it, <laughs> was to have an NCAA-style bracket of attractiveness of various American yeah. politicians <laughs> and pit them against one another. A- a- an idea that was sure to get us all canceled. But now, Alicia, your idea is that we decide the future of America based on what would be the funniest presidential matchups.
1: Oh, like Yeah, Let's do that'd that. be much more fun than what we're doing right now, guys. You know, inflation, violence, riots. There's a lot of stuff going on. But if we could have a guy running against his ex-wife's father-in-law, that would be entertaining. That would be reality TV without having to have a separate show on Netflix.
0: You know, it's funny you should mention because one of my pitches, and I've mentioned this on this show before, I'll just quickly say it. One of my pitches to the Democratic Party is you are focusing on the wrong stuff when it comes to the whole refi that you're doing right now on which state gets to go first in the presidential nomination process. Here's the answer. Who cares? It doesn't freaking matter. I'll tell you what you should really be focused on. What you should be focused on is actually having a nomination process that makes the candidates exciting and interesting to the American people so that they will actually receive votes. I do not care which state gets to go first believe for you new hampshire i love you but come on i don't care i just want the democrat to win that's the function of a party is to get your nominee to win so alicia to your point i'd be in favor of a reality tv based thing why spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a nomination and cnn getting all the benefit of all these debates i don't want cnn to benefit I want a reality TV show that makes the various nominees look amazing, that's exciting, that's full of drama, that's sexy, that's, that's, that's going to engage people and make them say, all right, I'm in, I'm going to vote for one of these folks. Right before the break, we were talking about my absolutely spectacular idea that Mm. instead of a big Democratic nominating contest with different states holding primaries and caucuses. Sorry, I fell asleep during the last sentence. What we should actually be putting our money into is a giant reality TV show featuring all of the candidates. And then by the time we got to the general election, American voters would actually be interested in these people, just like they were in Donald Trump. Alicia Preston was pitching her idea that we should determine the 2024 matchup based solely on the ratings of what would make the most interesting Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard style matchup. You were suggesting Gavin Newsom versus Donald Trump because Kimberly Guilfoyle.
1: Guilfoyle is his ex-wife and she is the fiance of John Jr.
0: Yeah, so it'd just be a big family drama. Everyone would be into that. It'd be better than any
1: episode of The Bachelor. Oh
0: my gosh, I and what I we none of us could remember what was the thing that she shouted into the camera at the remember when they held the Republican convention at the White House and they're like hey laws forget you we don't care about the Hatch Act we're just we're just going to do that here um
1: yeah, and then she screamed something into the camera I,
0: no no one can remember I don't that. remember
1: but it was like the equivalent of the dean scream from Iowa back in the oh, day oh yeah
0: except except dumber
1: yeah no <laughs> <well>.
0: hey look <laughs> I, so right before, uh, seriously, when we were off the air, we, uh, Alicia and I were recounting that that moment, that real low point for America, and maybe a high point for the Trump campaign. Let's face it. And I was kind of tongue in cheek asking my friend Republican Alicia Preston, "Are you like dying of embarrassment for your party like every minute?" And she was like, "No, no, no, no. I have successfully disassociated myself from the Trump wing. Okay, so like they're over there, I'm over here. It's fine." I don't feel that shame for them anymore. But that raises a question for me. Is it actually possible that we could jettison the useless extremes in both parties and actually have a centrist coalition emerge in America? I'm not just kind of making this up myself. There has actually been a fair amount of of analysis and, and suggestion of this very idea in recent weeks. Tom Malinowski, a New Jersey Democratic member of, congressman, uh, member of Congress, wrote in the New York Times that a viable third party is coming, and it's starting with a New Jersey lawsuit. There's a whole bunch of details there that I won't get into, but he thinks there's going to be a third party in America. Um, Michael Gerson wrote in the Washington Post that the only way to overcome Trumpists is to have a centrist coalition, and he points at new races emerging in Utah. And of course, Tom Friedman wrote in the New York Times that the recent Israeli coalition government model between the left and the right and the center is a model that the U.S. should be emulating. Of course, he famously suggested that Joe Biden should run with Liz Cheney in 2024. Paul, I'm gonna turn to you first. Is it possible that there is room it may be not for a third party but for for some kind of a centrist coalition to to emerge in america is that is that a real thing
2: well we've certainly shown our addiction to the two party system um we've seen that time and again when independents have tried to run um and and you might say well things have to get really bad before anybody would seriously consider a third party or this kind of coalition. Well, folks, guess what? Things have gotten pretty bad. I mean, here we are on the brink of the destruction of the democracy with an ongoing conspiracy by members of a party. party. Uh, talk about disassociation! Uh, members of a uh, malicious party um, still plotting, planning um, to steal the 2024 election. So things, yes, folks, things have gotten pretty bad. Here we have walked to the edge, to the brink, and. Looked at the abyss of the violent overthrow of our government a coup by a president so that qualifies as pretty bad and in light of that and in light of uh liz cheney whose father i must say was not my favorite politician let's just leave it there but liz cheney has shown herself to be a champion of the fundamental importance of our democratic institutions. Uh, We can have our policy disagreements, but apparently the buck stops at the water's edge of the destruction of our democracy. Now, if that is the galvanizing principle around which um, there could be a coalition of left and right who say we will agree to disagree agreeably, uh, but we will uh, govern as states persons uh, with the greater good of the country and try to find compromise where we can, but understand that fundamentally we want to improve our institutions, not destroy them. Um, That Could be at this time when everything seems so unworkable and so dysfunctional and so many members of Alicia's party have disassociated themselves from reality, maybe, just maybe it could work.
0: Well, Alicia, let let me turn to you because we're invoking Liz Cheney an awful lot. And there was an analysis in, in Politico over the last couple of days that said, look, She's up against her primary against Harriet Hageman in Wyoming. She has outraised Ms. Hageman by, I'm trying to do a quick percentage. She's raised about 10 million bucks. Hageman has raised 650,000, but, but, but the majority, the vast, vast majority of Liz Cheney's money is coming from out of state. Hageman has actually outraised her inside the state by a margin of two to one. And in fact, A lot of Liz Cheney's money is coming from major Democratic donors. So I'm not sure how to read all of this, because on the one hand, it's clear that Democrats are truly kind of coming around and saying, you know what, whatever else you think, we support you fundamentally in your integrity when it comes to saving democracy and standing up to Donald Trump. On the other hand. You don't have to go too far on Twitter if you're a Democrat and you kind of exist within that filter bubble to find screeds against Liz Cheney's policy positions and reminders that she voted with Donald Trump over the last four years in her position in Congress more than 90% of the time. And she is stridently pro-life, which is kind of toxic in the Democratic Party right now. So with all of that in mind. Is there a viable pathway for some kind of a center-right, center-left coalition, whether or not it takes the form of an actual third party?
1: No. And here's why. Um, Liz Cheney is not a centrist any more than I'm a centrist. Those of us out here who may not, you know, be whether you are a conservative isn't dependent upon whether you like or support Donald Trump or like or oppose the January 6th hearings. That has nothing to do with whether we're conservative or centrist or anything else. Uh, And so, you know, when you're a conservative and you don't Maybe support Donald Trump or do support the investigation of the January 6th committee. That doesn't change who you are from a policy standpoint. And so the reason this theory of a centrist party to take the middle won't work is because there's just not a lot of those people. Um, you know, for some reason, a label has been put on Republicans who aren't fans of Donald Trump, um, that we're rhinos and should leave the party. And But the reality is there's a lot of us out here who don't want Donald Trump to run again. Um, there's a lot of us out here that do believe January 6th was a horrible time in our country that tried to overturn the will of the people. Um, most of us believe that at this point in the Republican Party. And so the, the idea won't work because there just aren't enough centrists out there. There are just people like me who are conservative Republicans who are holding on with our party because of our policy beliefs and waiting for the next generation of Republicans to come in. I, I do.
0: I, I have to admit. I haven't come to a conclusion myself on this because history is not on the side of the idea of some kind of a viable third party, or even some kind of a viable coalition? What would it look like? I mean, you know, John Anderson got, what, 7% of the vote in 1980. We have seen independent governors. When you get an independent senator, like they, they have in, in Maine, or even Bernie Sanders in Vermont, they caucus with, they, they, they align themselves with one party or the other. And it's very, very hard to kind of have independent ground operate outside the two party system. And we've just never seen a successful effort to have an actual viable third party. But what keeps me from dismissing it entirely is that we can't stay here. There, there was, there was a, a great movie. In the 90s made from a tom clancy book called clear and present danger harrison mm, ford was in excellent movie great movie there's a scene where he and his fellow cia operatives are trapped in an alleyway and there are people with rocket launchers up on the rooftops shooting down at them and one of the characters turns to harrison ford and says you know basically i don't know where to go we just can't stay here And that's kind of the way i'm feeling about america right now i'm not sure that there's a path that i see to a viable kind of coalition center left center right but i don't think we can stay here because i don't think we're in a tenable stable place and if we keep getting carried along by events and we kind of you know hope is not a strategy if we kind of keep hoping that things will work out the right way We're running a greater and greater risk all the time of a total meltdown. We came, Alicia, as you just said, came this close, this close to a total systemic meltdown in 2020, really, really close. And there has been just an absolute torrent of analysis from experts about how badly the conditions are setting up for next time around. And I'll give you just one addition to that, and I'm going to plug an article for just a moment. I, I I just put in an article, maybe by the time people hear this, the article will be out on Alternat and the editorial board. You can look it up about this new case that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear, the, the Harper case. It's It's really about what's called independent state legislature theory, which is a fringe legal idea that under the constitution, state legislatures can do whatever they want. And that no state constitution, state court, or any other power can overcome what they say when it comes to federal elections. Well, if that sounds familiar to you, that's the theory that underlay the Eastman memo and the whole Trump coup. plot. The idea that you could get electors, fake electors from the states, overcome whatever people had voted for. It's like, oh, that's cute. You voted. Great. Nice. Nice for you. But we're going to just say what what the outcome was here. And there is a real chance that the Supreme Court could rule with Republicans and find that independent state legislature theory is a thing. And if that happens, all of the state-based protections, not just against gerrymandering and vote rigging, the kinds of voter suppression things that we tend to worry about, but laws against actual voter, voter subversion, election subversion would be uh, unstoppable, essentially, by by any other state power, state courts. And so things are setting up to get much, much worse. So anyway, that's, that's a very roundabout way of saying, I don't see it. I don't see a path for a third party or a centrist coalition, but we can't stay here. I don't think we can stay where we're at.
1: I think we're moving. I'm just not sure in what direction. Um, You know, Chris Ray, the director of the FBI, uh, gave an interesting interview or might have been speech, but I was watching it online. uh, And he talks about political violence and how there's way too much of it out there, right? Not just in America, in the world. I mean, Sri Lanka, Japan, other places, political violence is becoming all too prevalent. And yes, here in America. And we are, to your point, at an untenable place in that respect. And I think people, I'm hopeful people, are, are going to see that it's gone too far and turn back around. Um, it, it can't keep at this pace. And the temperature of this country has got to come down. It has got to come down because the, the alternative is unthinkable. And, and that goes for the far left and the far right. Most of we Americans are just going about our daily lives, going about our daily lives, but there is extremism. And it is, you know, the two extreme sides are going to meet, and they're going to clash, and they have, but it's going to be on a much more philosophical and broad sense, and it's going to be very damning to this country. And I think cooler heads need to prevail, The majority of America needs to speak up and say political violence is never okay, no matter who's doing it, and that is not what America is and who America is. And that will change the politics of things when that occurs.
0: I do want to point out, though, I I... I hope you're right, for one thing. I I just want to point out that under Donald Trump's Department of Homeland Security, the head of of Homeland Security, again, under Donald Trump, issued a report that the Trump-appointed head of the FBI agreed with that right-wing extremist political violence is far and away the biggest threat. It was far and away the biggest domestic terror threat that we face. Now, there are a lot of whataboutisms out there trying to pin things on left-wing violent people. I'm not saying there's no such thing, but it is a much, much smaller threat. This is not me saying it; This is Mm -hmm. Donald Trump's own Department of Homeland Security. And so I think the problem that we run into is that there is not a parallel to be had here. There is a problem. I agree with you, Alicia. There is a problem. And it is worldwide. There is political violence worldwide. But we can't draw a parallel. The fact of the matter is, political violence is much more prevalent. Of course, gun violence is much more prevalent in the U.S. than elsewhere. And within the U.S., right-wing extremist violence, according to Donald Trump's own Department of Homeland Security, that we really need to be worried about. And the, the fact that it's not a parallel means that we kind of have a one sided problem to fix. And that means that you can't kind of be, you know, every attempt to try to tamp it down, Republicans in positions of authority, like Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, run interference for the people fomenting violence. We've seen that on the January 6th committee. And lo and behold, those are the people who are testifying this week, the head of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys are coming in front of the committee to talk about their efforts to do what? Foment violence, political extremist violence. So it's, I, I, what I worry about is that it's a more intractable problem than we can deal with. But let me connect that, that thought to something else that's been in the news. And it does actually happen to connect to maybe people going a little bit too far on the left there was a lot of ink spilled over the protests that occurred at a Morton's Steakhouse where Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh was eating. Now, Morton's kind of leaned into it and created further blowback when they issued a statement claiming that everyone has a right to eat dinner. And of course, the response to that from the left was, First of all, no, I see no such right in the Constitution that's laughable, since you just found that only the exact words that appear in the Constitution are constitutionally protected. So if they don't say you have a right to eat dinner, you have no right to eat dinner. But more to the point, it's like, really, you're comparing what they just did in the Supreme Court to, you know, Brett Kavanaugh's right to not feel like there are protesters outside the restaurant where he's eating? No, sorry, that, that dog's not going to hunt. Uh, Paul, I guess I'll turn to you first. I, I mean what do you what do you make of that whole brouhaha did the protesters go too far
2: the right to have dinner in peace is not in the constitution so let's just take the originalist view of this if it's not in the constitution the right to have dinner in peace is not a right that is protected by the united states constitution therefore the united states supreme court um, perjurious justice who was eating said dinner Uh, gulping down the Morton steak probably does not have a federally constitutionally protected right to eat dinner in peace. Now, would it be more polite and respectful to simply stand there silently outside with the Morton steakhouse, a cordon of protesters holding signs saying whatever they want to say about Brett Kavanaugh? Sure, it would be more polite, but it's certainly um, peaceful, nonviolent protest is certainly part of the American pantheon, and I, I contrast that to what happened on January 6th. This is not a January 6th event. This is protesting um, uh, in the American tradition.
1: That's my view. I love that Matt just discussed how whataboutism is so ridiculous, and then we fall into whataboutism. But this other stuff is worth than what these protesters did. Um, you know, unless. The right to dinner <laughs> falls under the second. alleged <laughs> under unless second. the right to dinner uh, falls under the alleged right to privacy that you guys see in the Constitution, uh, then no, no, I guess you don't have a right to have dinner, but what you do have the right to is not be harassed and that goes from Morton Steakhouse, because what the folks did afterwards um, cost them money cost them effort they called up and they filled up the restaurant with fake reservations, so people wouldn't go there. And you cannot interrupt a business from doing business because they let a guy dine at their restaurant. I mean, that's bullying. It's wrong. It's anti-American. And and it's just not the way to go about things. Here's the other thing about protests. Protests are fine. They're supposed to do something. I would ask these, what were they hoping He would do run out and be like, let me call my other justices and let's get back and change that vote. I mean, it's ineffective to do this kind of protesting protest at the Supreme Court. You don't go to their homes. You don't stalk them at restaurants. There's a left wing group out there right now that is offering $250. If you notify them where one of the six justices that voted down um, Roe v. Wade happens to be at that moment. $50 for a tip, if they're still there by the time these people get there. That's $250. That is dangerous. It is not effective, which is the most important thing. You want to change what happened in the Supreme Court, go to your state legislatures and ensure that abortion is legal for access for women or go to Congress and get them to ensure it stalking a guy at a restaurant isn't actually going to change anything except what it will do is get people who actually agree with you turned off themselves
0: i have to say alicia i agree with you i I do it reminds me i'm I'm gonna i was talking kirsten cinema in the bathroom
2: okay i'm gonna pull a janet yellen pull (laughs) a Yellen. i was wrong i agree with you it's not really polite it's i agree it's not really effective and they should stand back at least you know, like 20 feet and 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 maybe like make a Hollywood line from Kavanaugh to his limousine as he exits the the restaurant there. Look, there are both civil remedies. There are local ordinances, all of which can deal with harassment. But in the end, it's not really effective. um, And they can, you know, there are there are other ways. Unfortunately, or fortunately, elections have consequences. Donald Trump and uh, Vladimir Putin were elected um, uh, in 2016. Uh, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump got their Supreme Court nominees, who effectively perjured their their way onto the court. Uh, so now we have to live with the consequences. Let Brett Kavanaugh eat his dinner and vote in 2022 and
1: 2024. I'm, I'm just sad we didn't
2: get you. a Putin impression. No, no, Perhaps no! Don't me. do it! Don't I'm do sad. it,
0: Lisa! What are you doing? <laughs> So I want to quote from Pete Buttigieg, who appeared on Fox News, actually, of all places, Fox News Sunday. This is what he said about the incident. I want to agree with it. Quote, when public officials go into public life, we should expect two things. One, you should always be free from violence, harassment, and intimidation. And two, you're never going to be free from criticism or peaceful protests, people exercising their First Amendment rights. That's what happened in this case. People are upset. They're going to exercise their First Amendment rights. As long as that's peaceful, that's protected. Compare that, for example, to the reality that as a country right now, we're reckoning with the fact that a mob summoned by the former president attacked the United States Capitol for the purpose of overflowing, overthrowing the election. I think common sense can tell the difference. Protesting peacefully outside in a public space, sure. Look, I can't even tell you the number of spaces, venues, and scenarios where I've been protested. And the bottom line is this. Any public figure should always, always be free from violence, intimidation and harassment, but should never be free from criticism or people exercising their First Amendment rights. So I guess where I come down on this, Alicia, is, you know, putting out a $250 tip line bounty is just politically dumb. People just don't do that because it ble- it's it's counterproductive. It's going to boomerang on you. It's just a dumb tactic. And It it sets up situations that are out of your control that can become violence, intimidation and harassment. So don't do it. Don't set yourself up for going over the line there. But by the way, showing up outside of Morton's, if you have every right to be there, holding up a sign, apparently he couldn't even hear that the protesters were out there. So, oh, no, I've only
1: ever been able to be outside of a Morton's, but I hear it's delicious.
0: (laughs) It sounds it sounds fantastic. Look, pretty high end, pretty high end steakhouse (laughs) people. (laughs) I, You know, look, I I, I actually I have to admit, I, I I used to go to the Morton's that's on, on Capitol Hill like once in a great while. They had like a twenty dollar lunch that I, I'd splurge on when I was a barely paid congressional staffer. It
1: was great. And well, you know what? To President Biden's inflation, that twenty dollar stake is probably eighty. Oh, President Biden's inflation.
0: Oh, boo, boo, boo. Well, yeah, you know what? You know what I remember about January 6th is that the gas was lower. Oh. Boy, wasn't that great.
2: And on that note, ha,
0: I get, I get to throw it back. <laughs> President, we're out of time. We're I was done. funnier.
2: What a great time oh, January no. 6th was with low Goodbye, gas prices. People. We'll
0: see you next time. Goodbye.